Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. When earthquakes happen, like this devastating one in Turkey and Syria, there are inevitable questions about how and why they can be so devastating. Well, the study of that, the science of earthquakes, continues, and there's new information on that front. For instance, researchers from the University of Texas have uncovered some information that might help explain why tectonic plates move the way they do. So let's learn about it firsthand. Joining us now is Jun Li Hua, who's the research lead from the University of Texas Jackson School of Geoscience. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me here. Can you explain your research to us? What is it that you look at? Yeah, so we are looking at the melting beneath crust. So if we think like the, the, the material, like in the Earth as a chocolate, so when it's hot, it starts to melt and become soft. So, and in the Earth, we actually found there are some places it's hot enough, so it's not actually totally solid, but it also contains some melting component, and those things are below the crust and above uh, about like 150 like, kilometers or like 100 miles uh, in depth. Okay, so then what happens when the, the substance starts to melt then? Is that what causes an earthquake? Uh, not not really, but uh, you can think in this way. So the earthquake, like the one just happened in Turkey, is actually at the plate boundary. So the, the one in Turkey is the plate boundary of Arabian plate and Anatolian plate. So two plates, they're interacting each other. So how strong the two plates interact will influence the frequency of, uh, of, the, of the earthquakes. And for those plates, one important component is called a thinosphere. So this is just a layer beneath those plates. So if we think like those plates, like boats moving on the water, then the thinosphere is just that water. So it allows the plate to actually move at the surface and interact each other. That makes it yeah. seem so fragile, though. It feels like then that <laughs> everything is very fragile. Oh, yeah, it's it's not, well, like, let's not say water, let's put it to honey, probably a little bit more sticky and less fragile. But yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's just like metaphor, so it's kind of like in that way. But we know, like, we all have, like, a very solid shell to protect us, not really like a, a single boat on the water. Okay, so how does this impact yeah. earthquakes then? Yeah, so... So, yeah, the long debate is whether or not if there's containing melting in the atmosphere, then would that just make all the plates easier to really float on the thing? Because when we think like uh, something is totally solid, it must be very strong. And when it's containing something, it's getting weaker. So whether or not that is case could just inform us. Uh, how easy like different plates can move with respect to each other and then cause earthquake. And what we found here is quite surprising is that those melting things actually did not influence the strength of those mantle rocks or the asthenosphere rocks that much. So we 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 kind of like solve a long debate uh, whether or not this melting have a big role in like how we understand the interaction between plates and related to the frequency of large earthquakes. Okay, so now that we know, now that your research has shown that there's like a melting layer that mm -hmm. makes it easier for tectonic plates to move, so that means that we can understand the earthquakes better. Uh, well, like we found a melting layer, but it actually not making things easier move, which is really counterintuitive to, to like really? some common thinking, yes. So that's a really surprising part of this study. So we need to, like, when understanding, like, say, plate motion, modeling those plate motions, we need to take this into consideration to not really thinking they are 
like much more weak weak than we would expect. This is fascinating. So what are you going to study mm-hmm. now? Yeah, so I, I would like to like continue. So for example, one, one possible direction is to say like uh, to do some further uh, study like at places where it has uh, earthquakes, whether or not if it has in like those melting beneath it or not, will change the frequency or like the intensity of those earthquakes, which could kind of like uh, probably help us better understand like the some hazard uh, there. It is fascinating stuff. Junli, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Cindy. Have a good thank day. You. That's Junli Hua, who's the research lead from the University of Texas. So they just discovered a layer of molten rock that is hidden underneath the Earth's tectonic plates. It's about 100 miles or so, I guess, 150 kilometers from the surface. And it's more than they said 2,600 degrees Fahrenheit. That is hot. So before now, they thought that this kind of happened in, in patches, not like a single layer But now they're saying, no, no, they understand this much better and that relationship to plate tectonics, which helps them understand why some earthquakes are so incredibly devastating, like the one that we are watching unfold in Turkey and Syria. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, two children have been killed after a bus crashed into a daycare in Quebec. Now, that sounds bizarre, doesn't it? And there are so many questions about this. So let's find out what we know at this point with the help of Braden Jagger-Haynes, who's a morning reporter for Global News Montreal and joins us now. Hi, Braden. Good morning. So can you let us know, first of all, how did this unfold? What happened? What happened around 8.30 yesterday morning, what we know is that a bus, a city municipal bus here in the northern district of Laval, which is just about north of Montreal, the bus driving right into a daycare full of children at that time of 8.30 in the morning. This bus used as a weapon, essentially, slamming into the building that was about a building that has 80 children and staff members inside. Now, from what we know now is that the driver is a 51-year-old man named Pierre saint amand He was arrested on site. The state of how he was arrested was one that was quite um, in a sense, one that is hard to describe. He was taken down by parents and people that were on the scene who rushed in to this daycare as the bus was partially inside. He was detained in a state of delirium, as people described him, in hysterical. One woman said that she saw his crazy eyes. He was also in a state that he was completely nude. In a sense, of that's how he was detained by these civilians, later arrested by police. There are now, the sad part of this, two children have died yesterday. There's also six that were injured in this crash. The good thing on the on one positive note is the six that were injured, sent to hospital yesterday, are expected to recover and are out of harm's reach at the moment this morning. But this is still a difficult story. When it comes to the arrest made, he now faces nine charges, two including the first-degree murder, attempted murder, and as well as assault. Now, he's being accused of these as of yesterday. uh, He was appearing in court. He also had a spat inside the court that we're understanding with police. had to pause as he was extremely aggressive. We also know that there was and will not be any psychological evaluation at the moment. And when it comes to the driver, the interesting part is we spoke to neighbors that he lives in Laval. He's actually a bus driver for the municipality for some 10 years now. And he is a father of two. Speaking to neighbors, they described him as quiet, calm, and one that never had any issues. 
completely the uncharacterization that we saw yesterday described by many of the witnesses. Okay, and so was there any indication prior to this, Braden? Like, was his driving okay? Was was everything else appeared normal? Nothing out of the ordinary is what the STL has not given an official statement. But people that knew him in terms of colleagues say that he was always one that was on time, someone who never had any issues. And that is the one thing when it comes to motives, police say they do not have one yet in terms of connecting the driver to the daycare. That is one thing that is evading this investigation at the moment and that is something that will still has a lot of people questioning of why something would be done who would do this why something like this would be done so tragic and so lethal and that is one thing that is really hurting the community here this morning as many of them coming to the site of where this is happening paying their respects leaving stuffed animals flowers and cards and that is one thing that is still hurting the community here and of course the nation as well so what, what happens now? What, what are the next steps here? Well, he is expected to uh, face another court appearance later in the month, about February 17th. As of today, well, this is when the morning starts. Of course, we're expecting to see uh, more of a vigil. There was one yesterday evening at a nearby church where people had a candlelight vigil. They say that they needed to come together to face this as a community, something that they say was horrible tragedy in their space, one space that is usually laughing with children. It's a roundabout point where the daycare is situated and residents that live beside it say that they always hear this laughter and that juxtaposed to what was heard yesterday's screams from parents in chaos is something very hard for them to comprehend. What we're also expecting is later on this morning, Francois Legault, the Premier of Quebec, will be on site to pay his respects and as well as speak with parents. He'll be joined by the opposition as well here in Quebec. But this is just the first day where things are coming together. We spoke to some of the residents here who are going to be dropping off parents here in Montreal. This time is when many parents are dropping off kids at daycare and school. And one woman I spoke to said that she, being this so fresh, saying this is something very difficult. One thing that she had to think about twice almost this morning. Yeah, no kidding. All right, Brayden, thank you so much for that. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Now to the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria and that huge rescue and recovery effort that is underway. Now, things are complicated on the Syrian side with the fallout from the ongoing war there, meaning even though there is international aid, it is available, it's having trouble getting through to the area. There are millions of people in this part of Syria that need help. Our next guest, Jude Kawatea, is a medical student in Aleppo, joining us now to talk about this. Jude, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me, too. Can you give me an idea of what it's like where you are right now? Well, the situation here is very saddening. Uh, I don't know where to start, actually. Uh, People are homeless, children are always crying in the streets, and we're witnessing, uh, especially in this harsh weather, it's freezing out there, and people have left their homes, and I don't know what else to say, but this earthquake is very grave indeed. Is there any help that is getting through to where you are? Uh, well, uh, the several INGOs and the NGOs, uh, as well as uh, social uh, initiatives and private ones, they are all helping. However, the damages they are very, uh, they are very, they, they are very too much for everyone, and it's not enough. Everyone is doing their best to sort of uh, put their aid and try to be in help for those people. However the buildings and the wreckage and the sort of uh, the shortage in food and medicine in everything is uh, even blankets in this harsh weather it's all uh, not sufficient Jude what kind of impact did the earthquake have this week I know things were tough before the earthquake but what happened when the earthquake happened uh what happened when the earthquake happened, well, I still recall that it was a Monday morning, it was not long before dawn, and when that earthquake was at 7.8 magnitude tremor, uh, it has caused, especially in the uh, east side of Aleppo, where I'm living, uh, where the buildings are very fragile, um, the wreckage the buildings kept wrecking themselves, and people, uh, so many people, 
being trapped under the uh, uh, wreckage and not being able to get help. And uh, I don't know what else to say. However, it's very, it's very saddening. And it's like a nightmare that we have never, until yet, until now, we have, we have never understood. Is there, trying. is there an airport there, Jude? Is there any size, are, are there passable roads? Yes, the airport is open. And uh, I don't know, everyone's tr- doing their best as well as the, um, the as I mentioned earlier, the uh, national NGOs and the um, social initiatives. However, I don't know if it's enough because until now, people are still under being in their, in, in, in their buildings, not being able to get out. And the fact that the people who has managed to go out, they still can go back to their homes because of those cracks and that are very dangerous and they can go back to their homes because these buildings are threatened to fall apart at any moment. Is there aid that is getting through? I understand that the way to get through here is through Damascus. Is just the one border crossing to get through to that area? Well, to be quite honest with you, I'm, I don't know much details because I'm just a medical student. I'm just telling you my uh, my personal perspective right. and what I'm seeing and the streets. As a medical student, how it must be so strong. It must be hard for you to see what is happening there because you're training to help people, but you you don't have the the other uh, things that you need to do that. Yes, it is very very hard. The fact that you want to give help, but it's uh, um, well, I'm, we're just trying to do our best at, at a personal level or with uh, um, social initiatives and others. That's all. What are the buildings like in your neighborhood then? Like, are, 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 are they still standing? What kind of impact did the earthquake have? Uh, luckily, the, the buildings in my neighborhood are still standing. However, uh, so many buildings are uh, being, are having those cracks, which are considered dangerous. So uh, uh, engineers are doing their best to sort of tell you whether your uh, building is sort of you can you, you yeah it's it's able to, right. to to for you to live in it or not jude what was your How daily I, life like before the earthquake happened uh as you all know the economic situation is very um it's it's very saddening and uh, syria has gone through a 10-year uh sort of war and uh I don't know. We're trying our best to sort of adapt to the situation, but but this situation after the earthquake is something that is entirely uh, has worsened everything. Will you be able to continue your medical studies? Well, I'm trying my best uh, to sort of finish my medical studies. Is this like is the school able to operate? Are you like how do you do that? Uh, no, we, uh, uh, the government has uh, given us sort of two weeks uh, free time for, for examining the buildings, being able for us to go back and uh, resume our studies there. Everything is stopping at the moment. Sounds like it. So Jude, what would you like the rest of the world to know about what is happening in Aleppo? Uh, that this is a humanitarian crisis and has been the worst indeed. And uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it's so much worse when you see the pain and you you witness those children crying out there in the street and you just can't do anything about it. I mean, I want. That's why I'm being here with you uh, on 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 this interview to sort of um, to sort of give and tell the world that is very very grave indeed and uh, I don't know what else to say but it's all I can describe at the moment. Jude that that perspective though that you bring is so important so we thank you for your time today and and please keep in touch let us know if there's anything else that we can tell the world about okay. Uh, thank you for having me too. Thank you for being on. That is Jude Kawatea, who's a medical student in Aleppo in Syria. Even before the earthquake hit, as you heard her describe, it was very tough with the infrastructure situation. Uh, there hasn't been reconstruction while the war has been going on. Aleppo has been the focus point of some aerial bombardments over the years. 
And then the earthquake hit. And she said, you know, now you're seeing people in the streets. The weather is cold. There's not even enough blankets to go around. And the problem is that there's not enough space for um, to get the humanitarian aid to this particular area of Syria. A lot of aid is getting through to Turkey, and they are helping to make that happen. This is a different situation because of how contentious the situation has been in Syria over the last 10 years. The United Nations is estimating that more than 4 million people in that region uh, are going to depend on cross-border aid for their day-to-day survival in this next little while here. And uh, yet it's struggling to make sure that aid gets through to people there. Uh, We'll be telling more of those stories as well. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is Mornings with Simi. When we see something happen, like this massive earthquake in Turkey and Syria, I think the reaction of... You know, the average Canadian like you or me is to think, well, how can we help? Oh, can I donate? What do they need? But there are other people who can go above and beyond that, people who have skills that are desperately needed in situations like this, whether it's search and rescue teams or, as we're going to learn about, uh, doctors. There are Canadian medical assistant teams that have responded to Ukraine and to Haiti, where they go to the area and focus on anything they can do. So joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Anthony Fong, who's the director of Canadian medical assistant teams. Dr. Fong, thank you for being here. Morning, Simi. Great to be here. So tell me about the type of work that this team does. So uh, Canadian medical assistance teams is a volunteer-run organization. Um, We provide medical response teams to basically disaster settings, and those could be natural disasters or they could be, um, you know, human-made disasters, as we saw in Ukraine last year. And uh, in particular, our teams provide primary care. So think emergency medicine, family doctors, uh, nurses, paramedics. And uh, our main job is to stabilize and refer patients that uh, need care uh, elsewhere, such as to hospitals. Uh, So when you see something unfolding like what we see in Turkey and Syria, uh, what happens at that point? Well, CMAT is very concerned about the health and well-being about the the Turkish and, and Syrian people. And what happens is um, basically a host country that is affected by disaster makes a call out to the UN, basically. And there's an office called the Office uh, of Coordination for Humanitarian Affairs. And basically, they coordinate all sectors of response. So the health sector, for example, is taken care of by the WHO. And uh, right now, the call out has been to mostly uh, urban search and rescue teams, as well as field hospitals. Um, But there's been, as of yet, no call for international medical teams to run field clinics, which is what our team does best. Okay, and so how does how do you get there? I just imagine the logistics of making this work, Dr. Fong, must be incredibly challenging in situations like that. Yes, yeah, so there are so many uh, concerns we have with this, uh, like an earthquake setting, because there are so many hazards. So what typically happens is that if uh, a field clinic or a field hospital is given the green light to deploy, we basically send an assessment team of two to four people over And this team does a multi-sector assessment. So we take a look at, um, do they have clean water? Um, Is there food insecurity? How is the general security of the situation? Is there any violence uh, or potential for violence? And are there any hazards with the working area, such as, you know, probably will happen here with uh, debris and rubble that has to be cleared and buildings at threat of collapse? Right. So I understand like this is work that you've done in Ukraine. How how does this work then? So do doctors volunteer for this? Can any doctor volunteer? So any, we're looking for doctors, nurses, paramedics, interpreters in, in specific languages, such as Turkish, Kurdish, and Arabic. And we've already sent a call out to volunteers. Um, People can also help out by donating. So, Um, You know, I've heard of, uh, for example, uh, a drive for supplies and clothing 
um, that's happening in Vancouver, um, kind of in East, East Vancouver. And I've also heard of calls out on social media for ways to donate, um, as well as the government of Canada has put a call out to, to donate as well. Okay. And so how does this work? So you send somebody in for two weeks or four weeks? How long is somebody expected to go and help out? So if uh, Canadian Medical Assistance Teams does deploy, we typically send out a team of about 12 to 15 uh, volunteers to deploy for rotations of about two weeks. And for example, we were in Ukraine last year for four months, uh, rotating people in and out. Um, The people who coordinate this, like the main logistics people, sometimes they stay a bit longer, but we find that two weeks is in a disaster setting tends to be enough for many, many people. I could imagine. Yeah. Dr. Fung, why do you do this? Why do you find this rewarding? Well, I just find there's there's very few things more gratifying than answering a call for help. And this is really the grand scale of things when it comes to helping out in um, in a health capacity. So when people really call for help and say, we need more health services, um, please come to our country and help us we're there to answer that call. And where can we help then? Well, I I think the main thing is to uh, really watch out for calls for donations. So for example, uh, you can go to cmat.ca and we have a call for donations and those will all, whether we deploy or not, those go to uh, donations to the country um, or direct medical care. And also there are many other ways to help, such as, you know, donating to other NGOs, uh, clothing drives. Um, I've donated to NGOs in in United States as well as in Turkey. So, right. uh, but so CMAT, donating however you can. CMAT.ca, we can get more information there. That's correct. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Simi. That's Dr. Anthony Fong, who's a Canadian director of Canadian Medical Assistant Teams. Uh, this is a great organization. You can find out more at cmat.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Family doctors, surgical wait times, modernization of medical records. I mean, all of these topics came up in the discussion about the health care deal between the provinces and the federal government this week. But you know what we didn't hear about? long-term care. And yet during the pandemic, that was all we talked about, how to fix it, how we had to improve it. So let's talk more about this missing part of the discussion. Isabel McKenzie is with us, BC's Seniors Advocate. Good morning. Good morning. Are are you disappointed to hear that there wasn't really talk about long-term care this week, was there? No, and I think the bigger discussion actually is also about home care. So if we think about what seniors need to support them as they they age, most seniors actually won't go to long-term care. It's only about uh, 5% of seniors and only about 15% of people age 85 and older that actually go to long-term care. Uh, Most seniors will have health care needs, but they can be supported in the community through home care and other supports. And that was also, I think, a significant missing piece of the conversation. One of the things we did talk about last week, and I was in Ottawa with my counterparts from New Brunswick and Newfoundland, Labrador, um, were the new long-term care standards, national standards, which uh, are good standards, but at the moment have not been made uh, compulsory in every publicly funded care home in Canada. They have not been made mandatory. So uh, also interested in that discussion with the federal government. But certainly looking at the health care costs you know, Simi, one of the, the things that is missing, I think, from the discussion when we talk about universal health care is that for seniors, a lot of the health care costs are actually being paid for by the seniors. We charge for home support in this province. We charge uh, for assisted living. We charge for long-term care. And where is the relief coming from uh, for the individual senior? That 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 is unclear. Have things improved in the last few years? Like, have we seen changes, Isabel, as a result of all the discussion during the pandemic? Well, in British Columbia, we do do some things well, arguably very well, and then other things not so well. Um, In long-term care, uh, when you compare us to other provinces, uh, one of the first things that jumps out is we have more individual rooms than most other provinces. 80% of our care homes are private rooms. 
and most of those have their own bathroom or or some are shared just with the other unit. Um, When we talk about staffing levels, and we've talked about that a lot, uh, they're not adequate. I think most of us would agree. But British Columbia is actually further ahead than most other provinces. Uh, Many provinces are talking about four hours or 4.1 hours of care, but they're not there yet. Um, And they're a little bit behind where we are. So we do that piece uh, well. In terms of our workforce, uh, BC has a care aid registry, uh, unlike other provinces. So the care aids that are working in our care homes and in our public home support program We have some assurances about their training and and there's a way to track uh, care aides if they're abusing or neglecting uh, patients or residents or clients. So that's all good. But there's lots of things where we are significantly behind other provinces. The care aid registry alone, though, that seems like a really good thing to have. I'm glad BC has it. But shouldn't the federal government be saying, okay, maybe everybody needs to do this? Absolutely, Simi. One of the things that is quite striking is how different seniors' care is in the different provinces. And that becomes apparent when you go to the federal government and you start talking to them about things and you talk to people from other provinces. The Canada Health Act guarantees a certain degree of uh, uniformity across the country. We don't have that in seniors' care. Everybody's process for determining what you pay for, for a nursing home bed, for home care, for home support, for whatever, for medications is different in every province. And the body age is the same, whether you're in Castlegar, British Columbia or Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, um, the way your body is aging and the things it needs to support you as you age are actually the same. Now, you had mentioned there that there are some other things, though, that BC could be doing, like what? Where we are coming up significantly short, and and certainly compared to other provinces, is in this area of home care and particularly home support. And we're, my office is working on a report that will be coming out, I think, in about two or three weeks' time on this very topic. And um, we, um, home support is something we charge people for in British Columbia. Uh, most provinces don't charge. Uh, those that do charge significantly less. So we are... Uh, the, you know, I, you've heard me probably talk a bit before that if you are earning $29,000 a year as a senior, that's well below a minimum wage, mm-hmm. by the way, um, and you need just one hour of home support a day, in British Columbia, we will charge you $9,000 a year for that. Wow. And so what we find, not surprisingly, is that BC, compared to Alberta and Ontario, where they don't charge you for that home support, we have more than double the number of people in long-term care in BC compared to Alberta and Ontario with low care needs. In other words, these are people that probably could be at home with proper supports. Why aren't they at home in in BC with proper supports? They can't afford it. We charge them too much. In Alberta and Ontario, they don't charge them for it. And so they receive those supports at home and they don't go to long-term care. It's better for them and it's certainly better for the taxpayer because it costs a lot of money. We're, we're subsidizing people in long-term care. The public subsidy is uh, an average of about $4,800 a month. And then the, the person living there pays another about $2,000 a month. But that is the amount we're paying to support people in long-term care rather than give them one hour a day free home support. Isabel, the thing is, anybody listening to that would think, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? Like, people want to stay in their homes. Why aren't we making it easier for people to do that? Uh, the short answer is, uh, I'm not exactly sure why, uh, Simi. It, it is frustrating uh, to me. It's been a frustration for quite some time. I'm going to, um, uh, again, sort of get, get the discussion going with a, uh, another report on home support. Uh, you know, to be fair to everybody, uh, our, we were distracted, for want of a better term, with all of the issues uh, surrounding the pandemic. So, you know, give everybody a little bit of a, a fair, okay, we didn't, we, we had other issues we had to attend to. Uh, but we need to focus on the future now. The seniors population is growing, number one. Um, more people uh, want to and are uh, staying at home, and we need those supports. 
If we were able to provide better community support, the one way to look at it is right now there's 12% of our long-term care beds occupied by somebody who arguably doesn't need to be in long-term care. They need some help. They don't need long-term care. The practical effect of that would be 3,000 beds every year freed up because we're providing the supports in the community. And we just need to find a, a and and stop stop charging people um, for their home supports because uh, families with modest incomes find it more affordable for their mom or dad or spouse to go to long-term care than to stay at home and receive our publicly uh, funded home supports given what we charge people for them. Well, it certainly makes sense when you explain it to us. Isabel, thank you for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for your interest, Simi. I appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi. So how much did you follow along this week when U.S. President Joe Biden did his State of the Union address? I'm guessing not much. I think you probably saw what most Canadians saw. That is the coverage of him being heckled and, you know, those things that he said. Very American in tone. But there were things in that speech that could potentially deeply impact Canada that we are not talking enough about. For instance, one of his big promises promising that, quote, new standards to require all construction materials used in federal infrastructure projects to be made in America. He said, on my watch, American roads, bridges, and American highways are going to be made with American products. Now, that would include things like lumber, glass, drywall, fiber optic cables. These are things that will impact Canadian manufacturers and they are worried about this. So what does this mean for that relationship and to industries here? Joining us now is Peter Clark, trade expert and president of Gray Clark Sheehan Associates Limited. Peter, thanks for joining us. Uh, Good morning, Cindy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Listen, what did you think when you heard that this week? Uh, Not much surprise. We've been heading in this direction for some time with the Biden administration. Uh, Generally in Washington, there's a view that uh, U.S. US funds uh, for for projects, various procurement projects, should be spent on American manufacturers, processors, contractors. Uh, This is just uh, the latest um, evidence that uh, they're very serious about it. And we are talking a lot of money here, aren't we? Because one, the other thing is they plan on spending a lot of money on these projects. There'll be trillions spent. And so how does Canada make sure that we are not uh, forgotten here? Well, you know, there's, there's, two, there's two types of uh, Buy America. There's the Buy America Act, which requires the um, U.S. government to, to source American products for any contract over their these are direct procurements anything over ten thousand dollars that is sort of covered by the WTO procurement rules um, we don't we can negotiate our way around them the the serious problem is the one you discussed in buy American um, there's going to be more and more spending through federal government funds on these infrastructure projects. And basically, we're presumed to be on the outside unless we can negotiate something on the inside. We did uh, we did that on uh, uh, electric vehicles. We got a we got a basically a better deal. But this is is going to be serious. We haven't seen all the details yet. Right. Well, uh, what kind of industries are we talking about here that could potentially be impacted? Well, they've already got. Uh, uh, serious uh, restrictions on uh, uh, on lumber imports through the uh, the trade measures, the countervailing duties on on lumber. But we're, we can still compete to some extent on lumber. We just be cut out. Uh, steel uh, has been uh, been re, been hampered by these by this legislation for years. It'll just get worse. Uh, I was I was intrigued by the reference to uh, to Wallboard because, you know, while he's doing everything he can to look after his producers of of gypsum board, the United States has been dumping into Canada uh, for more than five years, and the federal government is uh, is waiving a large part of the anti-dumping duties 
that protect uh, Canadian uh, drywall producers in Winnipeg, um, Edmonton, and Surrey. So then, I don't understand, what can we do here then? Do we just have to pick our industries and fight for those industries? Well, the um, the, Canadian, the Canadian government is used to this. Uh, you know, the, the Buy America Act itself uh, goes back to 1933. And the uh, Buy American provisions, which used to be strictly for surface transportation, like railways and roads and bridges, are now extended to all kinds of infrastructure and other departments. Um, you have to get your facts straight. You have to know exactly what it's uh, what's involved and whether or not there's any flexibility in it. Uh, we've got a good team. We've got a great ambassador down in Washington. She does a she does a good job. She doesn't uh, shy away from a fight. And you've got good people here in uh, in Ottawa looking after it. And uh, they'll they'll dig up and they'll go and they'll argue. The problem is the uh, we haven't got any real rights under well we have rights under the WTO but you can't enforce them because the United States has crippled the dispute settlement mechanism uh, and as for Canada US Mexico agreement procurement between Canada and the United States is not included so we are just kind of at the mercy then of what they decide to do oh you don't have we don't have much of a comeback the only way we can we can deal with these things is uh, if they do something illegal to us we do something illegal to them. That's what we did on steel uh, when they, they imposed uh, 25% tariffs on steel and 10% on aluminum back in uh, several years ago under for their alleged national security concerns. Canada did the same thing to them. And eventually we worked, uh, we worked out an agreement. But, you know, those types of trade wars, nobody wins that type of trade war. I guess we have the impression here, Peter, too, that we just we're not supposed to have these problems with the United States. Like, what happened to free trade between the two countries? Well, the uh, the new the new trade agreement, the uh, the what do you call it, the COSMA, and the Americans call it the USMCA, was not really certainly wasn't better than NAFTA, and we sort of uh, we paid for something uh, the same as we'd already bought and paid for or less. It's a question of who who has the leverage, and at at the time that we were negotiating with the Americans, they were uh, not only imposing restrictions on steel and on aluminum, but they were threatening to impose restrictions on automobiles, which would have been... uh, crippling to the Golden Triangle in uh, Ontario. Right. So this is just something we are going to have to wait and watch and see. Peter, thanks for your time. Oh, you're welcome. That's Peter Clark, who's a trade expert and president of Greg Clark Sheehan Associates Limited, talking about the U.S. State of the Union address this week by President Joe Biden, where he talked about uh, using Buy American rules to make sure that all products used on infrastructure projects in the U.S. are American in nature, and they mean everything. He says, we're going to buy American. Well, what does that mean for us? That's what the big question with that is. There are definitely potential impacts there. This is Mornings with Simi. Public safety, mental health, affordable housing, and oh yes, please make sure the garbage is also picked up on time. It is not easy being a city councillor these days. And in Vancouver, there are a few new faces settling into that job. And this week we heard about one of the big issues too, that cooperation between the province and the city on the mental health front. Now for more on some of the changes that we're seeing and hearing about, we're joined now by Peter Meisner, Vancouver City Council for ABC. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Cindy. Thanks for having me. Well, this has been a really interesting week, I think, in terms of the cooperation between the city and the province. Like, What has that been like from your perspective? I think it's fantastic. Um, we need the cooperation of the province and, and of the federal government, frankly, to tackle some of the biggest challenges in our city. So we had our big announcement on Sunday, and that was the uh, grant to Vancouver Coastal Health uh, around mental health uh, nurses uh, in the downtown east side. So that's going to allow us to uh, increase the CAR 87 and CAR 88 program. That pairs uh, police uh, with a mental health um, nurse. Uh, to, um, you know, meet with people that are in mental health crisis. And I think, um, as we all know, we're seeing those issues play out on our streets. So I'm confident that that investment is going to make a real difference in Vancouver. 
And what do you feel? I mean, you're new to council, right? And so when there's all these pressures, outside pressures happening, like we heard, uh, you know, conservative leader Pierre Polyev this week talking about the state of Vancouver, and it was not very flattering at all. Like, how do you feel when you hear that? I don't think it's helpful. Um, I mean, we're all aware of the challenges in the neighborhood. I don't think anyone in City Hall thinks that, you know, the situation in the downtown east side is acceptable uh, for the people, most importantly, who are living there who are, you know, suffering. Um, so I don't think his comments are helpful. They're very divisive and, uh, yeah, just not appropriate in my opinion. Right. And there's a lot going on here, right? Are you not also talking about Gravel Street revitalization? Yeah. So Sarah Kirby-Young, uh, Councillor Kirby-Young, put forward a motion around Gravel Street revitalization. That's really to bring uh, the energy back to Gravel Street. I know, like, when my parents come to town to visit, they always talk about Gravel Street and how it was. And, uh, <clears throat> frankly, last time they were here, uh, we took a walk down gravel and they were pretty uh, disappointed, I guess, with just kind of how different it is and, and the deterioration. Um, also, just in terms of the day life on Gravel Street, you know, we still have a vibrant nightlife scene on Gravel, but during the day, it's a bit of a dead zone. So we really want to bring back life to Gravel Street. We want to use uh, the street as more of a promenade for events, for patios. Uh, and we saw success with that uh, last summer with the Gravel Street promenade. So we want to build on that and just bring energy and vitality back to the street. Right. But, Councillor, these, these are all great ideas. It's nice to do. But, like, once you get in that position, are there roadblocks that you run into? Like, do you think, oh, I thought this would be good to do, but it's tough to get this done? I mean, things are not as simple as they seem, for sure, right? But I think the good thing is, is that we have broad consensus on council, um, outside of our party as well. Uh, we do have a majority, but we're all aligned in, you know, making downtown Vancouver more vibrant, more exciting, and also tackling these issues that you mentioned in downtown east side. We all want to make improvement in the neighborhood, whether that's housing, whether that's safe supply, whether that's treatment and recovery. And we're all aligned on those issues. Plus, we have supportive city staff. So I feel like with our majority on council and our alignment with our, our colleagues, we can really make uh, you know movement on these issues. Like, what do you want to see happen? Why did you run for council? Yeah, you know, I've been in Vancouver for 20 years. It was my dream to live here. Um, I grew up on the island, and uh, this is always the, the big city to me. Um, so I moved here when I was 18. Uh, I used to work in, in media, so reported a lot on uh, civic affairs. And also, you know, being a downtown resident and seeing the city change, I wanted to get involved and really make a difference. I think over the past four years, and certainly COVID had a part uh, to play in this, but we've really seen Vancouver kind of lose its way and not really um, have a clear identity and what we were standing for. So if you remember 2010 and all the excitement up to the Olympics, and how everybody came together out on the streets to celebrate. I feel like there was this real like sense of energy and optimism in the city. So I want to be part of the team that brings that excitement back to Vancouver. And I think, you know, with FIFA in 2026 coming up, we have an opportunity to do that. And finally, you know, I really believe in, in Ken and uh, his leadership. And I know that uh, we're going to get great things done for the city. Now, everybody always talks about the Olympics. Oh, that was so great, that feeling easier said than done though right like how how do you bring that feeling back like what kind of events how do you encourage people to gather like that there's a reason why they call us no fun city yeah i think we need to make it easier to host events for one if you've heard about the city's process for hosting events it's quite complicated and expensive so we need to create and you know we need to review that process and make it easier to host events we need to have more of a, a an atmosphere around things like patios, things like temporary street closures in the summer to do concerts, say in Gastown or Granville Street, uh, just to create that environment where we're saying yes to these ideas. We have so many creative people in the city with tons of ideas about how to make Vancouver more exciting and vibrant. So we need to create a culture of, you know, yeah, we want to do that. And here's how we're going to help you, as opposed to, you know, here's the 10 reasons why you can't do that. Right. But how do you do that then? So do you encourage people to apply and come out? Like, look at the folk festival question, right? Like, how do you make sure these events happen? Yeah, I mean, we need to make some changes in terms of city policies. Uh, we also have a council that is, is open to these ideas. Uh, but you're right, we do need to uh, perhaps, you know, put out the message. And I think the message is getting out there from, from the mayor, from our councillors, that Vancouver is open for business. We're open for new ideas and we, we do want, you know, we need their help in creating a vibrant, exciting city. So please come forward with your ideas and we can help make that happen. But also from a structural um, standpoint, it is the things like street closure, closures. It is the things like patio permits. It is the things like, you know, simple things like lighting and, uh, you know, uh, patios, uh, you know, creating those kind of vibrant street scenes on plazas and, and, uh, and streets around the city.
And so do you think, I know the cup fee has been getting a lot of um, attention this week as well, coming back to Vancouver City Council. Do you, do you see the end of that? Yeah, I think that uh, the end of the cup fee is near. Um, you know, it's a, it's a punitive tax on consumers that isn't really making an impact on what it's intended to do, which is to reduce single-use waste and make a positive impact uh, towards combating the climate crisis. Uh, the, the fee, the 25 cents, goes directly to the retailers. So it's not actually going to the city. It's not going towards environmental initiatives. They're pocketing the 25 cents. And if, I don't know if you've noticed that coffee shops, most people are not, haven't changed their behavior. I, I'm not seeing more people bring reusable cups, for example. So uh, it doesn't make sense. And unfortunately, the city is restricted by the charter in terms of collecting that fee. So we actually can't collect that fee to use it for, say, environmental initiatives. So we want to scrap the fee and uh, look at alternatives. So we'll see that happening, what, in the next week or two? Uh, Motion's coming forward uh, in the next few weeks, yes. So hopefully by the summer it'll be gone. All right. I'm sure people will be, some people will be very happy about that. Uh, Listen, thanks so much for your time this morning. My pleasure, Simi. Thanks for having me on. That's Peter Meisner, Vancouver City Councillor for ABC, talking about some of the challenges they've had first 100 days in office for them. And yeah, there's a long list of things that still need to be dealt with here, too. Also, just wanted to take note of this. Uh, If you're like me and you love books and you love to read, then undoubtedly you probably check out websites like the Indigo website, right? It's down. It's been down for a long time now. And it turns out the company is dealing with a cybersecurity incident. They said you go on their website, nothing works. So if you have to even go to an Indigo store today, uh, they can only take cash essentially. So they can only process cash payments right now in the stores, can't process any electronic payments, can't accept gift cards, can't handle returns or anything like that. So there's a huge delay. The website essentially is not even working right now. And that's all they've said. They don't, we don't know much more than that, but they're having a cyber security event right now. And that's a pretty big Canadian company that is completely come to a halt this morning because of that. So obviously a lot of questions about that too.